0: Before the introduction, I do want to read a few quotes. Uh, I don't think it's excessive. I do want to get across the point that these ideas are not isolated. These are quotes from some famous philosophers. Uh, the first one, let's see, just get one quote from him. The famous French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, he, he actually contributed a lot of philosophy that is part of the basis of American civilization. Uh, he had a big focus on individual freedom and liberty, uh, and that was born out of his views like we see here. This is a quote from him, everything, uh, sorry, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. It's a beautiful, uplifting quote from Jean-Paul Sartre. We have a Romanian philosopher, Emil Ciaran. He wrote a book, The Trouble with Being Born. That's a very cheery title. And he wrote, "It is." Uh, he said, we do not rush toward death, we flee the catastrophe of birth, survivors struggling to forget it. Also cheery. He wrote, It is not worth the bother of killing yourself since you always kill yourself too late. A little bleak. Uh, let's move on to German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. He's uh, actually a very famous German philosopher. Read several of his quotes. Let's see. He writes To our amazement, we suddenly exist. After having for countless millennia not existed, in a short while we will not, again not exist. Also for countless millennia. He writes, for all things are fleeting, and they are so in such a way that they together constitute a constant passing away. Life is a constant process of dying. My wife was talking about maybe doing needlepoint on a pillow uh, for something like that. He also writes, human life must be some kind of mistake. The truth of this will be sufficiently obvious if we only remember that man is a compound of needs and necessities hard to satisfy. And that even when they are satisfied, all he obtains is a state of painlessness where nothing remains to him but abandonment to boredom. And then finally, to end our parade of joy, uh, we have famous French philosopher Albert Camus. And he wrote the following succinct observation. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. All of these philosophers perceived something in life that believe it or not, with a ingredient missing, a very key ingredient, is actually grounded in something true. How do we know it is? Because the apostle Paul says as much. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, The Apostle Paul actually recognizes a certain truth in what they're saying, but it's not a complete truth. It is missing a vital ingredient. Looking at his own life, the Apostle Paul saw many similar things. These philosophers talk about how life seems like suffering after suffering after suffering. Trial after trial after trial. To the point that you wonder, would it have been easier if I just had not been born in the first place? And we'll jump into the middle of his thought, reading some of the others, hopefully later. In First Corinthians 15 and verse 30, he's asking of himself and those who serve, As he serves in verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that is the missing ingredient that Paul recognized. Life is only let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the dead do not rise. But if the dead do rise, everything is different. The resurrection is central to our faith. The fact that there is a future beyond the grave is an essential ingredient to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The recognition that this life is not all of life. In fact, when you look at it, this entire physical life we have will one day be fully and utterly consumed by something so much more to the point that it's hard to even fathom that this will come to mind for the joys that will replace it. Eternal life In the kingdom of God. Today, what I'd like to do in the sermon is to discuss the central nature of the resurrection to our faith. And I'd like to do that by actually going through some consequences of the reality of the resurrection. That is, I want to ask if the resurrection is real, then what follows from that? And take a look at what God has to say in His word about that fact. And the title of the sermon today is, What If the Resurrection is Real? What if the resurrection is real? And I have to say it's entirely possible, especially all the more with visitors, but maybe some who, who are new, that you may not even realize there is a resurrection. You need a booklet. That booklet would be, What Happens When You Die? by Mr. Richard Ames. Literally, read the title. What happens when you die? It's all right there. And I, I, I don't say that actually facetiously. I remember when I first started attending. Sorry, I wasn't attending yet. I was just learning the truth. I was about the, the this particular moment happened when I was, I think, fifteen. Maybe I, I, I'd come to understand that you don't go to heaven or hell when you die. I knew that. That was different. I had grown up thinking that, you know, this poor rich guy in the parable is burning beneath my feet and has been for hundreds of centuries, really thousands of years. And that when I die, I'm just going to get, you know, beamed up like in Star Trek to heaven. And that's what I thought was real. And then I was starting to uh, read the magazine, the plain truth magazine at the time and starting to study. And I realized that's that's not what the Bible says. You don't go to heaven or hell. But what I didn't know is where did you go then? I don't know. I didn't, you know, it's kind of a hard thing to learn first as you don't go anywhere, but then what do you do, right? Are you just like a, a frozen screen, you know, and your soul just kind of waits in suspense? What is it? What happens to you? Well, I did come to find out later and what I found out was there is a resurrection. That there is a resurrection. And the resurrection is real. But if the resurrection is real, it has consequences for us. That is, we have things to do, decisions to make. We have to see the world differently. All those philosophers I read, they weren't dummies. They weren't uneducated men. By far, many of them were more educated than perhaps every single human being in this room. But without the revelation that there is something beyond the grave, they all followed the thinking that comes from that to its logical conclusion, that there's just no reason to go on other than to make up some reason, and that reason you make up ends up being fiction. So I want to ask, if the resurrection is real, what follows from that? Uh, we're going to take a look at a few examples. You may come up with other answers, other ways to complete the second half of that sentence. If the resurrection is real, let's look at the first one I'd like to highlight. If the resurrection is real, then our future is unfathomably more important than our present. Now, the present does have a significance, and we'll definitely talk about that. But it's important to recognize that our future... If the resurrection is real, if there is a time when you and I perhaps die and then we'll be resurrected for eternal life, or, of course, I, I don't mean to skip it, but if we're alive when Christ returns and are transformed like those who are resurrected, I hope that's all of us because I hope it happens really soon. But if that's the case, then our future is unfathomably more important than our present. And let me illustrate this with a, a sort of a... I'm the executive editor. I should know either a metaphor or a or an analogy. I'll ask ChatGPT later. Let me illustrate this with a picture. So let's say I'm driving to work. Not today. It's the Sabbath. But on a work day, I'm driving to work. So from my house to the office. Uh, it's a mixture of roads, highways, and, 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 and non-highways. But it's about uh, 30 minutes. It's generally a little less than 30 minutes. If it's a really, really, really good day, it might be 24, or 25. But but generally about, about, about 30 minutes. Well, let's pretend that that distance, it's like 16, 17 miles or so. Let's pretend that that distance from my house to the office represents a billion years. That you're kind of, that every inch or so or every foot you're measuring is some part of one billion years. And how big is a billion years? Well, we we'll want to try to illustrate that. Our universe, theoretically, according to at least the, the current theory, uh, has only been around for less than 14 billion years. So when I say a billion years, I'm talking about a significant chunk of the actual existence of the universe. If the distance from my house to the headquarters office that I drive Every you know, five days of the week uh, for about half an hour is depending on traffic. If that were a billion years, well, let me consider my life. I am 53 years old. Let's say I make it to 100, right? I'm going through a lot of screening. So far, all, they're all turning up thumbs up. So, you know, 100 so far, right? I mean, I'm on the way at least. I've clearly got some things to work on. You don't need to tell me. I know. But I am on my way, Right. Let's say, let's just give it to me because it makes the math easier. Let's say a hundred that I can actually somehow pull off a whole century of life in this life. Well, what fraction would that turn into in terms of my drive from my house to the headquarters office? If that drive is a billion years, essentially, have you ever seen a ladybug? Surely so take a ladybug and I know it sounds gross take half of a ladybug. How long is half of a ladybug? That would be my whole life. If I successfully live to be 100 and yet the drive to the office is equivalent of a billion years, the moment I put the car in reverse and go backwards out of my driveway, a half a ladybug's distance, that's, that's this whole life. That's everything this life has to offer. Now, let me ask you about my drive to the office. Do you think that, you know, 20 minutes in, I'm thinking, I tell you, that first fraction of a second when I drove, that was amazing. That, you know, the way I could just, there was, I was still hearing the sound of clicking into reverse and it just kept reverberating in my mind. What an amazing few hair's breaths, you know, that drive was. Am I pulling into the office and thinking, I just can't wait to go back and do that driveway thing again, that, that millisecond, you know, that I was there. No, it doesn't come to mind. I'm listening to podcasts on the way to work. I'm thinking about the things that I have to do. Sometimes I'm taking, you know, I've got the, the, the car play on my, on my thing and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that there's a call or something I'm trying to, to dodge till I get to work. Uh, I've, I'm living things. I'm thinking things. Well, now keep in mind, and Mr. Jonathan McNair talked about this a bit in part of his sermon last week. When your first billion years after the resurrection has completed. Realistically, how how much are you going to be thinking about these days? Do you think you might have by then replaced these days with far more? How much more fellowship? How much more joy? How much more accomplishment? I'm not saying these days aren't important, but we'll see why. The key is to realize how God sees things. God isn't interacting with our lives for the sake of trying to make the best, the very best, half of a ladybug. He's trying to give you a fantastic drive all the way to work. He's trying to give you the best billion years you can imagine. Now think about it. What about a billion, billion years into the future? When that first billion years is the equivalent of a half a ladybug. Actually, smaller because I got the factor of a hundred off. But ignore that. You know, a leg of a ladybug. You know, a few hair's breadth. You're talking about eternity. This is eternal life. And I know it really turns the... For the brain, it can give you that kind of blue screen of death like Windows machines used to have before they hid them in other ways. Uh, it, it really does start to, to... to In fact, I have a story. Mr. Jonathan McNair mentioned that in his own sermon. Like, it's just... It's hard to imagine. Well, it is hard to imagine. And I remember one of my favorite conversations. I asked Jonathan uh, if he remembered it. I'm sorry, Shmonathan. I asked Jonathan if he remembered it because he was eight. He was only eight at the time. The church had had hired us. We were We were trying to sell our house in Texas. And... I remember just going in. They, we had them, I just, visually I remember because we had the house kind of prepared to show. So his room looked much nicer than it normally did, even though he always kept a, a nice room. But he was there and he was just distraught. And I asked him, I said, well, Jonathan, what's, what's going on? I said, well, Dad, he's eight. You know, you talk about eternal life, right? But, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, everything ends. I mean, stories, Stories come to an end. And I said, well, it's like, it's like a story that, that doesn't end, you know? It's like you turn the page and there's another page. And you can almost hear the modem noise coming out of his head. And he says, but, but how? I, I don't understand, you know? And, and he's starting to get tears in his eyes as he's struggling to understand this infinite existence. And I said, son, you are eight years old. You know, there are people that have spent their entire professional philosophical lives, right? Wrestling with this idea and you're trying to grasp it. And I just want you to go to bed, you know, because I'm tired. So we wrestled a bit and I don't think he understood it any better. I'm not really sure, but it is difficult to grasp. But at the same time, that's how God sees. God doesn't just see what's going to make a great Decade for you. What's going to make a good week for you? He is in this for your life after the resurrection and all of that time outweighs this beyond compare That is what is most important This life is the means by attaining that and that is its singular importance. Let's turn to Romans chapter 4 Romans chapter 4. And I like this passage because to me it's a bit of an indication of how God thinks. And I'd like to touch on it before we move on to the next point. In Romans chapter 4, this is where Paul is talking about Abraham and God's interaction with Abraham. And we're just going to grab sort of a nugget out of the thinking here. In Romans 4 and verse 16, if you'll not mind some things that don't seem directly related. Romans 4 and verse 16, Paul writes, for therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, as Paul so cruelly says elsewhere, Abraham was as good as dead at this point, uh, right? He's in his, in his 90s. He's, you wouldn't expect this man who has no real heir to actually become the father of many nations. And it says, uh, again, that God said this in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. God calls the things that don't yet exist as if they already did. He said, you are, I have made you notice the past tense feel of that. Not that you will be. I have made you the father of many nations. I know you feel old and you don't have any progeny, but it's virtually done because I have said it and made it so. God is the one for whom the future is so solid. The truthfulness of what he says, his ability to make them come to pass is so sure that even when he says things that haven't happened yet, he can speak of them as if it's the past tense. Because no one can make his will come to pass like God can. And what is God's will for us here? It is for us to freely choose to inherit this life to come. We're the only variable ingredient is that, and that he's not going to force us to. And that should be encouraging that he sees this way. And we'll talk about that more a little later. But that first point is that if the resurrection is real, our future is unfathomably more important Then our present and these are all related that will be very much related to this point the second one if the resurrection is real then it gives perspective on what this life offers if the resurrection is real it gives a very very vital and needed perspective on what this life has to offer us. And when I make this point, there's some obvious takes on this, but also some that are not so obvious. And I say that, at least not obvious to me. If they're obvious to you, keep it to yourself. I don't want to know. There's takes on this that are obvious and some that are not so obvious. Let me talk about the obvious ones, for instance. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to jump down to the story of Moses. In verse 24. Hebrews 11 and verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. When you have resurrection mindedness. Eternal life-mindedness. You see sin for the passing pleasures it represents. And keep in mind the half of a ladybug versus the entire drive to work. When you really look from that perspective, the passing nature of them becomes more and more apparent. The resurrection gives us perspective on what this life has to offer. In fact, it tends to remind me of Esau and his soup. We won't turn there, but if you aren't familiar with the story, you can read it there in Genesis where Esau, who was the firstborn between him and Jacob and had the the birthright, really, it's easy to judge Esau. And I think there's two reasons we shouldn't judge Esau too harshly. Definitely, he made a terrible mistake, and he's a, a good example of the decisions you shouldn't make and the priorities you shouldn't have. But essentially, you have Jacob there who's made this stew, and Esau's hungry. Oh, give me some of your stew. I'm so hungry. I'm about to die. Come on, bro. I said, bro, hey, they're brothers. And uh, he said, why? yeah, sure, for, for your birthright. Oh, it's really good, right? You know, what's it to me? Birthright, forget it. You know, yeah, you bet. Go ahead, go ahead, give me the soup. So he, he trades his birthright, one that was really, that was being inherited from one of the wealthiest men of the time, right? It comes down from Abraham, and he's giving away for a bowl of soup. Now, the two things that, that made me want to have some sympathy for Esau. One is that, you know, you and I didn't grow up with Jacob. It's, it's too easy for me to imagine Jacob, supplanter uh, that he was, just always needling Esau. Why? Because I, let's just say I, I have four sons and I know how needling can happen. Uh, and it's easy to imagine Jacob kind of every day of his life here and there. It's like, hey, you know, Esau, I'm so glad you have the birthright. You know, I mean, I am. It's good because, you know me, I'm going to succeed no matter what I do. But, you know, you just don't have the same skills. And, and it's, it's going to be so much easier for you to already be able to start off with a whole lot. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll probably pass you eventually. But, you know, you'll, you'll feel good about it for a while. And that kind of brotherly terribleness, you know, going on. And just one day, perhaps, he cracked. One day, we'll get to know the full story. That's, that's the way the movie plays in my mind. But also... The more we the more we treat Esau as sort of an exhibit of something that no one would ever really do, then we fail to see how we make the same choice as Esau. In fact, we make worse choices than Esau. We are the ones when we choose, say, a harsh word to our spouse. or we fudge a number somewhere? Are we? Artfully, color, some words we say about what we've actually done in a way that we know is not true. Versus eternity. Every bit of character we fail to build in this life is something we don't have for eternity. It makes Esau's trade look brilliant. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. First Corinthians 3 and we'll start in verse 10. The apostle Paul writes, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we have the foundation. All of us have the same foundation to work with. There's only one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. But what do we do with that foundation? Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become clear for the day that is that great day to come will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. We have an opportunity in this life, if we're resurrection minded, to build things that last forever, forever. You know, when that temptation comes along and you resist, whether small or great, it's only small or great in this life, every centimeter, if you will, that you gain when it comes to the character and love of God and making that more a part of your life with Jesus Christ's help, that is something that lasts forever. It's something that does not go away and it's something that goes with you as your reward into eternity. When you understand how important life is after the resurrection compared to this life, you start to realize that every single choice matters. That's kind of an irony is that, well, this life in one hand is less important than the life to come. And yet this is the life in which we get to build that life alongside Jesus Christ. Every day of your life and every day of mine, Jesus Christ is right there next to us, ready to build, ready to help, ready to hand, ready to to man the tools with us. And we have an opportunity to construct something beautiful with him that will last forever. And those moments when we step aside to do something he would not be a part of are always lost opportunities. The less obvious side in terms of the resurrection giving a a perspective on this life is the perspective it gives to the blessings and benefits of this life. I'm not talking about passing pleasures of sin. I'm talking about other things that aren't necessarily wrong or bad. And here's where I I have to be careful. We try to explain on the telecast, we try to explain from the lectern, that the life Jesus Christ has to offer is a good life in this life. Jesus Christ came that he may give life and life more abundantly. And while that does point to eternity, virtually everyone in this room can surely point to things in their life that things would not have been as good as they are if you weren't seeking to live the life that God commands. Sometimes it's irrational. Sometimes you take a step on faith. It's like, God, I don't even understand why that makes sense. All I know is your ministers keep saying it's true. I think it's true there in the Bible. I'm just going to step and you do. And then you find it does make things better. I look at my life. I look at my wife. I look at my children. And I can't fathom how my life in those respects could conceivably be any greater in those regards. And I have no one to thank but God the Father and Jesus Christ. I am grateful and will forever be grateful. God even protecting me from stupid mistakes in my past, right? That would have potentially ruined those things and didn't. And so we talk about this way of life and we highlight the fact that it is very much an ingredient of good things in this life. But we have to be careful about that because that fundamentally can't ultimately be why we live these things. Because there are no guarantees that it will always bring good things in this life. This world is the devil's. It is not God's. And we definitely have different things coming in the future. I'm saying this from Paul's perspective. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. We have to be careful. Jesus Christ was not on earth preaching a gospel of let's make this physical life a great life. It was not the gospel of prosperity in these days. It was not the gospel of peace and joy and happiness until you die in this life. It was the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now in this life, we have the privilege of living elements of that life. And that's wonderful. And thankfully, it often does produce good results in this life. But sometimes people confuse that for a guarantee in this life and become disheartened when good things don't happen. When they're eating right and they're exercising and they're trying to live a good physical life and they're still burdened with disease or sickness. When they're tithing and they're doing everything they can faithfully and they still can't find a job. One that sticks they 're still losing their house it 's important to have this in perspective, and we understand the the vital importance of the resurrection and that 's where christ the fact that he points us there it helps. Paul is very plain in first corinthians chapter whoops fifteen i 'm in the wrong verse first corinthians fifteen and we have to make sure we do believe this because it 's true. Paul is talking to the Corinthians and talking about life if the resurrection is false. If there is no resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not rise. And if we don't rise. Now, keep everything else the same. He's not talking about not having the law. He's not talking about having the way of life we're taught to live. He's not talking about having holy days to keep and a day to gather And other people, he's not talking about that. He's just saying, but what if in the end we find out it's not true? What if in the end we show up for the resurrection and we're all by ourselves? Because frankly, we didn't get to show up because there isn't one. Because there were some in Corinth who were teaching that. Perhaps teaching all of this as a way of life, but disconnected from the final reward. And what did Paul say about that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can say in verse 16, just start there. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Keep that in mind. You might be having a nice life, but your sins are still there. And he continues. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your parents, your grandparents, everyone you've ever known, they're literally gone forever. And then verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Of all men on earth, we're not still the most to be envied. Oh, look at them, man, they're still fantastic. No, we're the most pitiful and to be pitied. Because we have sacrificed so much for a lie. It's important that we not ever fully detach the blessings of this way of life from the ultimate fulfillment and reward. Because let's face it, some of you here know how difficult this life can be. You know how challenging things can be. Let's look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is somewhat related. It's an interesting thing that Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here he's actually talking about people that are causing a great deal of trouble. And we're just going to jump into the middle of one of Paul's sentences. He was very good at long sentences. an editorial, we would probably reduce those or break them up. And yet, at the same time, God had him write them. So we got to keep that in mind. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 5, breaking right into the middle of the thought, he talks about useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. If someone only really sees the godly life as, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the means to good health. Uh, it's the means to success at your job. It's the means for, for financially uh, supporting yourself and, and having financial security. is That's all we see godliness for is a means of other gain. We've missed it. As he says in verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. That's fundamentally the gain that we should be seeking. You know, if you compare two different individuals, for instance, let's say there's one and they're going to sound somewhat stereotypical and please forgive me for that. But I I want them to be as accessible as possible. Say one who poured himself into his education Got a Ph.D. in engineering. I just pick engineering because I went to Texas A&M and you couldn't throw a stick without hitting an engineer. Uh, you know, has this great engineering degree uh, and poured himself into his job, uh, built a family. And because maybe it contributed, money was good. He had some good uh, principles in terms of rearing his kids. The kids are decent. He's got a great family, a great income, an assured uh, pension fund. And he lives this life in relative comfort And happiness. And then take another fellow who maybe didn't get all the same breaks. Things continue to not go the way uh, they should, perhaps. Uh, Maybe he's a mechanic. I also happen to know a lot of mechanics. And his life has always been grease and grime. Uh, You can see on his body the kind of ding marks. And never quite as much as he'd like to make for that. Took care of his family but it was far more of a struggle uh, to make those dollars go as far. I had to put up with his kids, not having as much uh, Thinks back. Maybe he could have gotten, you know, more education, maybe, or at least some other train, maybe something definitely doesn't have a pension plan. Struggles thinking I'm really going to have to repair cars until I die. And then let's say they both die. Now, not knowing anything else, What could you say about eternity for either of those men? What could you say about their next billion years? Their next hundred billion years? Their next billion, 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 billion years? You know, you really couldn't say anything definite because there was nothing in there that would give you a clue as to that existence. But you can't ask the question that reveals the difference. What character did they build in those lives and how close are they to Jesus Christ and God the Father? Because no matter those details, the blessings, the good things this life has to offer, no matter whether they're piled up or scarcely to be found, it is those decisions that were made day by day building godly character. Seeking to know Jesus Christ, spending time with him on their knees or as you get older and the knees don't work in a chair, trying to get to know him and the power of his resurrection. It is those things that determine that eternity. The rest eventually doesn't even come to mind anymore. It being replaced by those things that were eternal. Last element on this point. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It's kind of a go-to passage for me, and I hope I haven't overused it in this regard. But we talk about the heroes of faith. And it's encouraging to read Hebrews chapter 11. talks about these amazing things these individuals did. And then we get down to Hebrews 11 and verse 35, where it says, women received their dead raised to life again, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. We're talking about those who sought the resurrection, but didn't necessarily see some of the blessings in this life that others did. Instead of having their enemies turn and flee, their enemies overcame them and tortured them. Verse 36, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Is it possible to be a faithful tither and still be destitute? All I know is this is what's held up to me as a faithful person. Who is. I'm not saying don't tithe. I got to put food in my kid's mouth. And God does bless us for tithing. I know he's blessed us. I am 100% convinced. When our third tithe years rolled around. I would claim that blessing for that. Uh, because God gives it there for us to claim. But we have to see that there's something larger that God is aiming for. And we have to be willing to give him permission that if withholding that blessing and allowing something else serves that eternity, then God, we yield to you. Because there's no blessing you can give in this life that's going to compare with the one you can see for me. Let me just make sure you don't see this as too contradictory and, and not biblical. Turn to Luke 21. This point was made I failed to figure out which sermon this was in recently, and I, I tried, and I just don't know which one it is. Uh, Luke 21 and verse 16. I think it was Mr. Weston's. He was talking about difficult times to come, and so I'm not sure. I think it was his. But I remember it was It just shown for me on the pages. I really, really appreciate it. In Luke chapter 21, verse 16, we see these promises of Jesus Christ concerning the difficult times to come. Uh, tribulation times and the times leading up to the tribulation, which we would still expect to be difficult. It says in Luke 21 and verse 16, he says, you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair on your head shall be lost. Now, if you read that too quickly, you don't see it, but you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 18, not a hair of your head shall be lost. Verse 16, they will put some of you to death. Okay, what in the world, right? What's up with that? It's like, well, they'll put you to death, but they'll slow, they'll take your hair carefully, you know, and put it, you know, put it someplace else. When he says not a hair of your head will be lost, he's looking at the larger picture because God will know. God will know and it's the eternity that matters. It's verse 19 that brings it together by your patience, possess your souls. The body may be destroyed, as we'll touch upon a later point. But those things that can last, those things where he can give you the spark of life again and place your spirit in a glorious body. And you'll count if you want and you'll have all the hair, hopefully more hair for some of us. I'd like to have a little more hair, uh, but it'll be there. It's that same misunderstanding. There, there are those that will take psalms like Psalm 91, how the arrows won't touch you, you know the arrow that flies by night and the rest, and they turn that into some kind of promise for protection in this life all the time. Where was that promise for Jesus Christ? Where was that promise for the people at the end of Hebrews 11? Because they felt the arrow. They felt the spear. It's because Jesus Christ is calling a people to look beyond the physical to the time that matters more. When it's not just the blessings we could have had in this life will be realized, but more blessings that we could not possibly realize in this life. All right, let's look at a third point. If the resurrection is real. If the resurrection is real. Then it gives perspective on our trials. This, the last point leads into this one. Romans chapter 8. If the resurrection is real, it gives perspective on our trials. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. One of my favorite passages. Romans 8 and verse 18. The Apostle Paul tells all of us, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not even worthy to be compared. And some of you know what kind of sufferings this life has to offer. Pain and sorrow and grief that you wonder if you would ever be able to climb out of. But that's part of the beauty of this passage is it transforms the magnitude of suffering that can be endured in this life. And then turns it into a source of comprehension for the life to come. Because it might be enough if he said the glories of the time to come and the joy of that time is eightfold compared to the suffering of this life. But he doesn't even say that. He says it's not even worthy to be compared. If you had the joy to come... And tried to put it next to the sufferings of this life. They wouldn't even show up on the scale. He continues verse 19 for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's real liberty. Individuals protesting and fighting for so many different liberties in this country. And liberties we have benefited from, but also liberties we are suffering from. Because of the messed up, deceptive idea of liberty that our country was founded on. Which I appreciate. It has been a wonderful life for me. In a not so wonderful life for some other people. This idea that you should be able to pursue happiness no matter where that happiness takes you is taking children into surgery rooms where they're being mutilated. And yes, some will defend that on constitutional grounds. Right now we're enjoying the liberty that a railroad car has when it is freed from the tracks, which is to lay in a field and rot. There's real liberty coming with the revelation of the children of God. As it says in verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's the resurrection that notice gives that perspective. He doesn't just say in verse 22, we know the whole creation suffers and is in agony. He specifically characterizes that suffering that these trials, as hard as they are, what are they? They are birth pangs. They're what you have to go through before something marvelous and miraculous is produced. It is the resurrection that gives meaning and purpose to the suffering and the trials that we experience in life. We see that in, in Paul's life. Uh, turn to Second Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians is there after 1 Corinthians in your Bible. I used to make that comment virtually every sermon in my old areas as a pastor. And it was just as funny then. So I've matured coming to Charlotte. I've only done it once every few years. Second Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul says here in verse 7. He says... 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, but we have this treasure, this treasure he's been talking about, we'll touch on, in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, we have to remember our weaknesses serve a purpose these days. God doesn't want people in the millennium saying, man, I understand why that guy's a part of God's family. I mean, look, he was, uh, he was an engineer. I don't want to pick on engineer. Let's say he was a mathematician. Uh, he, you know, look at, look at that, you know, and, and really he, he worked hard and he was so smart and that isn't what God wants anyone saying in the millennium. He wants them reflecting on our willingness to have walked with him and that being the source of our glory, our willingness to yield ourselves to God and Jesus Christ in every respect. And in that way, our weaknesses end up serving his purpose. Again, verse seven, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side and they were yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. You know, he's kind of. Uh, How do I put it? There's echoes of what these philosophers said. We read at the beginning in his words, being hard pressed, being perplexed. But notice what he doesn't have. He doesn't have the despair. He doesn't feel crushed by the weight of it. Verse nine, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That point the world tends to miss that what we're doing now is trying to live in such a way that Jesus Christ can live his life in us now so that we can enjoy the life that Jesus Christ now enjoys later. Verse 11, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke... We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Faced with the same gloomy things that Sartre and all these different philosophers were faced with, he had a different outlook. Why? Because he knew there was a resurrection. He knew there was a purpose to it all and an end to it all. And that resurrection gives us perspective on our trials. Uh, consider in verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now, see, still, his circumstances haven't changed. He's being oppressed. He's being persecuted. And here he's talking about thanksgiving. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. You think Paul's joints didn't hurt from all the walking? You think he didn't bleed when the stones would pelt his body? He could look at his body and see the marks that told him, yeah, this outward body is perishing. It is dying. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's so much there in this one statement. Well, first he calls it his light affliction. I mean, don't raise your hand because the moment you do, we're going to want to know your story later and be distracted from the sermon. But imagine you could raise your hand if you've been in, I don't know, three shipwrecks. Anybody? You know, like one after the other. You know, anybody? Uh, stoned outside of Antioch or some other city. Anybody? I mean, with... You know, rocks, right? Uh, I don't know what kind of past some of you have. Uh, anyone who's been through those things where you had to be lowered down a wall because people were waiting to murder you. You had the life of the apostle Paul. And through all he went through, he calls it a light affliction. Is he flexing on us? He goes, oh yeah, you yeah, know, it's no big deal. Or is he trying to add some perspective compared to what's coming? He goes, oh man, it is so much more worth more than this. He says it's worth more than this. But he says specifically for our light affliction, verse 17, which is but for a moment, we've talked about how small that moment really is, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice it is the suffering that is working this for us. There's an intimate connection between the trials we go through And having this exceeding and eternal weight of glory being worked out for us. To wish away our trials in this life would be to wish away the very tools God is using to build our future after the resurrection. The resurrection adds perspective to our suffering and our trials. Okay, a fourth point I wanted to make. If the resurrection is... Real. And I do hope that this will spur you to meditate about this. I, I, I was so excited that the last time I had a sermon to give, uh, or maybe it was the second to last time, Mr. McNair gave one right before mine that was so close to mine, and mine was the next week. I thought, er, Mr. Jonathan McNair, I want to talk about the roles of fathers and certain kind of gender things. And what did he do? He just gave, I have to admit, his was better. So it's good that you got his instead of mine. But regardless, like, well, I can't do that. Well, then I was planning on talking about the resurrection. And he starts talking about the resurrection last week. And I thought, what are you doing? You know, are you reading my notes? But thankfully he, he went through it, you know, fairly briefly. So thank you, Mr. Jonathan McNair out there. But I do want you to meditate on that because part of what I it did encourage me the way he did, because he talked about, you could tell he has thought about it and it does melt your brain if you will think about it, but it's so worth the melt. Uh, and I hope this will spur you to think about what are the consequences. Maybe some that I haven't even mentioned. The fourth one I wanted to mention, if the resurrection is real, Then point number four, there is nothing to fear in this life. Kind of building on the trials, because sometimes those trials are life-ending. Or sometimes they're life-destroying, where your life goes on, but so many things you even love about living are gone. And we can fear those kind of results. It's very natural to fear death. If you don't fear death in any kind of way, as if like, you know, you had a choice, A or B, life or death. Well, I don't really care. You know, just just pick one. Well, then there's something wrong with you, right? God has put in us an instinct to preserve our lives. No one who is not alive can do any work towards the kingdom. It's very natural to want to preserve your lives. It is overwritten by other desires, of course, to preserve the life of those you love. Jesus Christ talks about that being uh, the greatest love. But the point is, in the decisions we make in this life, we don't have anything to fear if the resurrection is real. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 10. You know, uh, I, I have not seen this sitcom, so I'm going to mention it, but it is not an endorsement. I need a disclaimer guy to come say, you know, that I'm not endorsing this. Uh, but the title was King of Queens, and I know I saw one scene. And it made me feel so cringy and bad inside, I couldn't watch the rest. Uh, but it kind of set the stage. Uh, the husband and wife were main characters, and they're on a plane, and suddenly there's an emergency of some sort, or something causes all of the, the mass to drop down. And I don't know if the husband's doesn't work or his doesn't drop down, but he grabs his wife's and, and puts it on his face. And no one else is really doing anything. He's the only one really panicking. And his wife starts to look at him like, what in the world, you know, you know what she literally he literally took her mask and put it on his face. And I get the impression the rest of the episode was them trying to resolve the fact that clearly he's just illustrated he would sacrifice her, you know, to, to save himself. And I just felt so bad. I couldn't even watch the rest. It was just it just was like, oh, I can't, you know, click or whatever. I just won't click anymore. We press. But I could I couldn't even watch the rest of that episode because of how terrible it is. But you know what? A lot of people don't understand what they would do when they're filled with fear. It's easy to imagine, you know. But it's hard to know. But the good news is we don't actually have to be filled with fear. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus Christ says something very plain in verse 28. Matthew 10 and verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, without getting into the complications, one, do note that there is no immortal soul. The soul is very killable. But what is it then in this sense? Because there are different senses depending on how the word soul is used. And just to get us through this verse, think of it as the pilot light, if you will. The animating uh, sense in a living thing. You know, they can kill your body, but God's in charge of your pilot light, He's the one that decides if you are ever going to live again or not. That's who you fear is the one who licks his thumb and puts that out. God does store our spirits in anticipation of resurrecting us. We fear the one who might choose not to do so. But as we've already read, he's on our side in this sense. In fact, we'll read one more passage to help illustrate that. We don't have to fear those who can kill the body. We don't have to fear those who can bankrupt. We don't have to fear those who can send forth disease as who knows what kind of wars and battles there might be in the future. It's interesting they never found the anthrax guy even. I keep wondering about that, right? You know, what happened to that? Of whatever the future holds, we don't have to be fearful. Now, does that mean someone won't kill us? No. Does that mean someone won't bankrupt us? No. And I I don't want to go into this too much because I talked about it so much uh, in the sermon I gave after the feast. But what is the worst case scenario? You die and the next moment you're in the kingdom of God. You close your eyes once and open them forever. If the resurrection is real... There is nothing to fear in this life. The only thing we would ever fear is somehow distance between us and Jesus Christ. And we're promised in Romans 8, which I won't read for the sake of time, that who's going to separate us from him? You and I are the only people who can do that. And he's actually actively working hard to keep us from doing it. That is part of the things I have to consider that encourage me. And I'll try to end with that verse when we get to the end of the sermon. But that even in those times when I find myself somehow maybe pushing at him, like maybe it's a, a it's some temptation of some sort or some thing I don't want to do that I really should do or something, you know, you have the Holy Spirit in you that God uses to prod you and, and, and you struggle with a human nature that you really thought was gone by now. But we don't struggle with that alone. Jesus Christ is actually there, working with us, working to keep us close. Doesn't so matter what do we let him. We're the only people that can generate that distance. Jesus Christ is not generating distance. No man or woman on this earth can create distance between you and God. And knowing that, we have nothing to fear. The last thing that I wanted to highlight, if the resurrection is real, Is that if the resurrection is real, then Jesus Christ should mean more to you than anything in this world. The man who walked this earth 33 and a half years who wasn't actually a man. He was a man, but he was so much more than that. The son of God made flesh. The word from eternity past who became flesh. Became the son of God, lived that life for 33 and a half years, shared a message that we have committed ourselves to sharing, died three days later, was resurrected into glory. That person, if the resurrection is real, then Jesus Christ should mean more to us than anything else in this world. Let's turn to John chapter 11. And see, it. I know it should be obvious, but at the same time, Jesus Christ worked hard to make sure it was screamingly obvious. And if he did that, I want to make sure I, I don't skip that. In John chapter 11, we have the tale of the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is going to sound like a weird thing to say maybe, but the only bad thing about this tale is that it's so familiar to so many of us. You know, familiarity, people say, breeds Contempt. Uh, Go ahead and raise your hand if if you have contempt for the Bible. Anybody? Well, I guess you're not familiar with it. Now, it's not true that familiarity always breeds contempt, but it does tend to dull the senses to that with which we are familiar. And it can certainly breed an apathy. And yet at the same time, all the moments recorded in the Bible were lived in moment by moment for the people who were there. It was uh, Mr. John Aguin was the first time to point out in a sermon that just kind of felt like it slapped me upside the face was that, uh, you know, Daniel, he didn't read the book of Daniel. He didn't know what was going to happen. He just know he's getting lowered into a den of lions. He wasn't guaranteed. He's like, well, this is how I'm going to serve my God. I'm going to be eaten by lions. So I guess that's it. Oh, hey, they're they're not licking their lips. Like I thought, you know, he didn't know how it was going to turn out. The people in John 11 didn't know and it 's easy for us sometimes to miss the gravity of what is said here because we do know in John eleven and verse one it mentions now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of uh, sorry of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wrapped his feet, sorry, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God might be glorified through it. Now, he wasn't meaning Lazarus was going to die, though they wouldn't have understood that from his words they would have thought, based on the context, it's very plain, they would have thought, oh, well, he's, he's not going to die. And he didn't go. He purposefully did not go. And we read later in verse 17. That by the time Jesus Christ did choose to go, it says in verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb Four days. He did die. And four days was kind of an important period because by that time, and I may have mentioned this recently, someone did, and uh, when it comes to some Jewish superstition back then, you had to be at least dead for three days for them to believe that everything was truly gone. There was no spirit lingering around the body or any kind of like that. You were absolutely undeniably dead. So so when Jesus came, he found the tomb had already been dead, sorry, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So a lot of people are here. Verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I'm not saying this wasn't a certain expression of faith. I'm sure it was. And, and, and she she makes a statement of faith in verse 22. But you do have to wonder. These were real human beings. And you called out to your friend who's this amazing Messiah figure who looks like he's going to be, you know, the king of Israel. And he's healing people right and left. And then when you're in your need, he doesn't come. He sends word. Oh, he's not going to die. And then He does. I can just ask the wives how many times your husbands have disappointed you. Hold up how many with fingers not to do that. Uh, how many times your husbands have disappointed you and you're trying to put a happy face on it. Is it possible she's doing that? I do believe she, she was faithful. And she says in verse 22, like she's here to reassure him that even though she says, but it's an important but there that regardless of this circumstance where my brother still did die and you didn't heal him and you didn't come. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I used to think that this was her professing that if you, but if you raise him now, that would be great. Because I want him to come back to life. But yet, you look at her tale, the rest of the story, and she doesn't express any kind of confidence that that's what's going to happen. I think, this is me speculating, I want to be up front, that she's just simply saying here, but I still, I... I still have faith in you. I still believe that you are the son of God, the one to come. I, that doesn't change that. I still believe that, that God hears you. So verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now let me pause there just for a moment. It's Again, these were... These things were being said by people alive at the time, in real time. It's easy to kind of read more into this like it's some sort of back and forth. But honestly, if, if have you been to a funeral where you're trying to encourage someone? And how many people had already told Martha at this point? Oh, Martha, you know, we'll see Lazarus again. You know, we'll see him at the last day. And how much this would have sounded like what everybody else had said before, I was brought into the truth and had my mind open. I'd been to plenty of worldly funerals. What do people do there? They encourage them similarly, but with something false. Oh, you know, he's in heaven, you know, right now and and looking down. I remember, I remember when my grandfather died, I told the preacher, I said, oh, I bet Papa's in heaven. He's already got his garden going up in heaven. And the preacher used it in the funeral message. But even I remember thinking, I just made that up, right? I don't think he actually... I don't know, you know, I was, I was honestly, it was a bad moment for me. Uh, anyway, well, it was a good moment, you know, it was God planting seeds, but don't read more into this than what it simply says. How many people had told her, her brother, what well, your brother was a good man. He will come up again in the resurrection. And she says, oh, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says something that makes no sense outside of the things we have the privilege of already knowing 2000 years later. It's important to hear them with the ears of Martha. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's to come into the world. Does she actually believe the fullness of what he said there? The passage that follows doesn't seem to indicate she really got it. They didn't fully get it. They're grasping at things that are beyond their reach, and Christ is about to bring them far closer and within reach. That statement you know, you've hoped in your life in the resurrection. You've heard about the resurrection. Your grandparents died and you heard there was a resurrection. Your parents died and you talked about how they'll, they'll come up in the resurrection. Martha, I am the resurrection. It's me. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. And who is alive? When I come is never going to die. Do you believe this? Well, it's one thing to say it, but he had come to this point to show it. And so it says in verse 28, she went away, she she got married, Mary came and talked to, to Christ. Let's jump down to verse 38. Jesus, after hearing everyone's responses, you know, they're disbelieving, all sorts of different things, as he groaned in himself. And he came to the tomb, verse 38. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, and this is how part of you can tell, she didn't fully understand who this was. Not completely. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. For he's been dead four days. She's not expecting her dead brother to walk out of that tomb. Otherwise, you don't say that. You say, yes, sir. But they did it. It says they took away the stone. And it says in verse 41, he lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Past tense. He's already asked for this. He's only saying as it does in verse 42, I know you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. It would have been comical, except can you imagine what that scene would have been like? It's easy to just think it would have been pure joy. And it's comical to think it would have been like some horror movie, people terrified, right? But what it would have been, frankly, is something no one's brain cells were prepared to see or accept. A man who had died and was dead beyond any debate or doubt... Is suddenly walking out of the grave. Why? Because he is the resurrection. He is that resurrection in human form. When he was talking to Martha. She was looking at the resurrection. He was our eternal future personified in front of her inches away. And if we care about the resurrection... If that eternity is something that matters to us, then we care about Jesus Christ because he is the resurrection. Then the teachings he shared are the most important teachings that have ever been spoken by a human being. The ideas that he has are ideas that we seek to incorporate in our lives. His goals, his dreams are the goals and dreams that we long to make a part of ourselves. Because if that future truly means something to us, then Jesus Christ will mean something to us because he is the resurrection. You know, in closing, we're in the middle of interesting days. It's, it's very interesting this year, the, the weekdays of the holy days for the spring holy days actually fall on the same days of the week that they did in 31 AD. And that always kind of gets my attention in a different way. You know, Passover was Tuesday night, the Passover itself and the crucifixion uh, was Wednesday. Jesus Christ was entombed uh, that sundown. And then sundown on the Sabbath, he was resurrected and left that tomb. Now that was two weeks ago, this sundown. That's 14 days into Christ's resurrection. And what Acts 1-3 tells us is that Christ didn't just immediately go up. He spent 40 days A resurrected being talking with the disciples, walking with them, appearing in closed rooms out of nowhere, eating with them and instructing them in the things of the kingdom of God. If we could take this very Sabbath and project it backward to the middle of the 40 days like it was, what were they experiencing this set-apart day? with the one who had set it apart, existing with them and teaching them that Sabbath. What they would have known was the resurrection is real. Our future is real. Our eternity is real because we see it talking to us. We can feel it with our hands. And they were moved by that fact. To want to spread that truth to the entire world. Brethren, the resurrection is real. It's up to us what we do about that fact.